beautiful reminder as we sing together as one of what a good father you are and how much we don't deserve the love that you've given us. We come now confessing we need you. Every hour we need you. And so as we dive into your word now, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts that are open, and a posture of gratitude for the gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Happy May Day. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Um, if you don't have it, we're, we're going to have communion at the end of the sermon. So if you uh, want to make sure you've grabbed the uh, elements there in the back. Uh, what a beautiful day. you got to say something about it. Finally, huh? Doesn't it feel like it's taken forever? So when I do my sermon prep on Sunday morning, not the only sermon prep, but the final sermon prep, um, the window in my office has been closed since October, I think. And my cat loves to be in that window and watch the birds and think how he might kill them. Um, and so today was the first day I was able to open that for him and Lori's got flowers going and then I come outside to come to church and it's warm enough for no one to ask me where's my jacket. Ah, we're here guys. So anyway, welcome. It's a great day. My name is Steve. If you don't know me, um, I'm a member of the elder team here and just a massive privilege to be on the preaching team as well. We are in the book of Ephesians. We've got a lot to cover today. If you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians 5, that's where we're going to get started in a minute, Ephesians 5. Last week, if you recall, the sermon title was Dress Code, and we talked about how we are adopted children of God and how the Bible calls us to be who we are. We saw that being who you are, an adopted child of God, involves constant and radical change in our lives. It involves knowing who you were. It involves your mind. It involves actual change in our lives. And being who you are pleases God. And if you didn't catch that sermon, it's up on YouTube, on Facebook. You can see it in a couple different places. And so today's sermon title is Walk This Way. And we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. And Shane's head immediately started doing this. My apologies, of course, to Run DMC and Aerosmith for the shameless 80s throwback. I'm thrilled to know Shane is old enough to appreciate it. He's not, but I am a child of the 80s, the undisputed cultural apex of music and all things art. Yeah, I need an amen, okay? And secondly, though, I believe that that phrase summarizes perfectly what Paul is trying to say in today's passage. And if the chorus of that song is in your head when you turn to Ephesians 5, it's okay. And so we're going to dive into that. But I want to make sure that at the end of last week's sermon, I put a quote up by J.I. Packer, and I want to start here today as well. 
He says the whole New Testament labors the thought that Christians will be radically different from those around them and from the way they themselves lived before. And so the proclamation of newness as both a divine gift from God, a gift he's given us, and a Christian obligation is loud and clear. And so we are in Ephesians 5, and if you have been with us, you know that both David and I have been making sure you understood the first three chapters. Boy, aren't they in a comfy zone. We're just talking theology and understanding what God has done for us and how amazing that is and that God has created this new society from the two, from Jews and Gentiles. No, he didn't add to them. He created a new one. And then we get to chapter 4, and we're like, oh, 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 now we're talking, oh, this is about how we live. If that is true, if it's true that God has done this, if it's true that God has created this community, if it's true that God has rescued us through his son, then how are we to live? And so that's where we're at. The application runs rife through these passages. We've got a lot to get through today, so I'm going to just throw up the main point Um, that we're going to dig through today, being an imitator of God is not some nebulous, far-fetched spiritual mysticism, because that's what it sounds like. It involves walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. And so the very first point I want us to start in with is because Paul starts with it is imitate God, and that's in verse 1 got your Bibles, you want to have them handy, I want you to be able to see this. All the verses are going to be up here, but I want you to see, and, and, and I definitely hope that as we do this, you would go home and you would consider these passages on your own. Uh, Ron and I were talking about this passage before we started, so if you have any questions about this passage, see Ron. Thanks. Um, <laughs> you like that dish? I do. All right, verse one, therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. So therefore, every time we look, we wonder, why is that there? The last verse that we saw was chapter 4, verse 32. It said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The very last words that Paul just used in his letter are, God in Christ forgave you. You are forgiven. Therefore... Be imitators of God. This is the only place that this language, be imitators of God, is used in the entire New Testament, right here. Not in order to become a beloved child, but because you are a beloved child. We are, I'm going to make that point till the cows come home. We are not called to this so that we will be children of God. We are called to this because we are children of God. Paul makes it clear. John makes it clear. Peter makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. We have a tendency to think we're always trying to earn something. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So most religions teach you that if you keep the laws of God sufficiently, you'll become a child of God. And the Bible reverses that. It tells us that we were made a child by an act of God's grace as a gift. 
And now we should want to imitate him because we love him. And if you recall, at the beginning of last week, I put another quote up by J.I. Packer. He said, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. My earthly father, David Robertson, 22 years ago last month, he passed away from Lou Gehrig's disease. It was a rough time. But I've found myself imitating him. My dad would always get up before the crack of dawn and go to work. I find myself doing that every day. I did this a couple months ago because I'm going to die soon because I'm aging. Yes, it's dramatic, but it's terrible. You, you young people that haven't had to realize your eyesight's going and you start holding your phone, you say, can I get one of those tripods? Um, I did this a couple months ago. And I went, oh, wow. My whole life, that was what I watched my dad do. He had a love of Romans that I didn't get for much of my life, and it is absolutely my favorite part of the Bible. And so if you can see that, my earthly father who loved me, who I loved, Paul is challenging us to imitate God as children who are loved beyond our comprehension. And so the rest of this chapter is going to tell you, excuse me, it's going to tell us because it's not done telling me after this whole week of having to be in here and having myself challenged. It's going to tell us what imitating God looks like. Imitating God, yikes. Well, the first thing it means is walking in love, and we're going to be in verse 2. Walk in love. Verses 1 and 2, if you want to highlight them, you want to circle them, they're going to be the umbrella for the entire passage today. Imitate God and walk in love. Imitate God and walk in love. Verse 2 says, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Okay. I want to boil this down for you if I can because you will hear sermons and they're completely appropriate where they say, well, the word love is used so many times and in so many ways in the English language, the word love is just love and in Greek it's phileo and this and this and this and this and you often will hear a sermon like that and you're going to forget. You just know that it's complicated and I want to keep it simple for you today. When we talk about walking in love, a working definition for love, right? So if I say I love you, if I say I'm doing acts of love, if I see someone say, hey, you must really love them. What I want you to kind of camp in your brain as a working definition for love is desiring God's best for someone else. Desiring God's best for someone else. And when, I, when, when the Bible talks about acts of love, you're actually doing things that are helping with that. And so if I say to you, I love you, it means I'm desiring God's best for you. 
Okay? Can we keep it that simple and not try to think when we say walk in love, we're not talking about having a crush on someone, we're not talking about being Twitter-pated, we're not talking, we're talking about desiring God's best. And so, number one, are you one, desiring God's best for those around you? If you're walking in love, you are. And are you two doing things that move in that direction? So we have two reasons right in this verse to walk in love. Number one, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We are to love as we have been loved. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Number two, when we love others, we're loving God, right? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We love others, we're loving God. It is like making a sacrifice to him. Lori's over here in case you were looking forward to volunteer for VBS. But anyway, my wife is awesome. I do love her because she's awesome. She's great. But the number one reason I love her is out of my love for Jesus. That's what walking in love means. And you're like, yeah, well, Lori's easy to love. Well, you're right. I'm not going to argue that. And there are difficult people to love. Um, I saw one person talking this week about we're required in the church to love folks we wouldn't want to go on vacation with. Okay, got it. And so I, I want this uh, to just be here for you. Our acts of love toward others are ultimately for Jesus. Mm. Even if they seem like they're being wasted on the person you are showing love to. Ooh, there's so much trust, there's so much truth there. But this is our call to walk in love, to desire God's best for others, to do things that lead others to God's best because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And when we do those things, we're making an offering to God. Okay? All right, got it. Thanks, Steve. Imitate God, walk in love, desire God's best for others, chase that, got it. Paul is now going to tell us what not walking in love looks like. He is writing into a culture that has many struggles just like ours. And verses 3 through 6 is not, he tells us what not walking in love looks like. And so if walking in love looks like giving ourselves for others, desiring God's best for others, offering our love to others as a gift to God, then not walking in love looks like using others for our own desires. It looks like not listening to God and either listening to our own desires or listening to the world around us. And one of the greatest ways that happens is in the area of sexual immorality. The world we live in is and has been in the process of redefining some of the things that the Bible tells us are sacred. And hear me out, marriage identified by God in his word as a lifetime union between a man and a woman, it's not sacred in our world. And it often looks like it's not even sacred in the church. And if marriage is not sacred, then sexuality, which the Bible reserves for marriage, is not sacred either. Are you following me? Okay. 
And when you put God's word to the side, when you take this out of the, pit, the picture and you remove what he's taught us, then people are not humans created in God's image and deserving of love. They become objects that you desire and use for your own personal gain and your own personal satisfaction. And the covenant of marriage is meaningless, ambiguous at best. And what becomes the most important thing is satisfying my need at the current moment. What becomes the most important thing is satisfying my need at the current moment. Sound familiar? What becomes the most important thing is satisfying my need at the current moment. The problem is what we just read. We are to give ourselves up for others, not use them to fulfill our desires. And today, in our culture, the word that you hear, I'm going to stick to my notes because I'm going to get preaching, so we have a limited amount of time. Today, in today's world, the word you hear all the time is consent. That, my friends, is a low bar. As long as the other person says it's okay, then it's fine for me to use them to satisfy myself. Guys, the Bible does not talk about consent. It talks about a covenant between a man and a woman that God uses to show the world the relationship between Christ and his church. And sex is a beautiful wonderful act reserved for that relationship. It is a beautiful example in this life of giving oneself up for someone else, and it is the exact opposite of using others to fulfill my needs. I hope you tracked with that. There is a month of sermons in that, but let's let Paul explain what not walking in love looks like, given what I just said. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Must not even be named. Adultery and other immoral things are things that you go ahead and turn it on, swipe, start reading. Our culture loves to talk about. Paul says they're not even to be things that are in our conversation. Oh! Wait, covetousness is in here. That's weird. I thought we were talking about sexual... What? It's covetousness is right there. Why is that here? That's one of the good sins, right? Well, covetousness is greed. It's craving something God has not chosen to give at this point in time. What do you want, and it doesn't take long, what do you want that God hasn't given you yet? And he might not. And I do want you to see how balanced the Bible is. Paul talks about sexual immorality. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble here. I'm going to say it. Paul talks about sexual immorality and all the conservatives nod their heads. Paul talks about greed and covetousness and all the liberals nod their heads. God is an equal opportunity offender. You will all be offended. 
we should be actively fighting against both. Okay? And so these things are supposed to be so far from us, we don't even talk about them. So Paul continues with the theme of our speech, and let's look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So don't be crass or joke about sex. Instead, be thankful for it. Sexual immorality and covetousness are all about satisfying ourselves, all about seeing what we can get from others instead of how we can give ourselves up for others. You see how the world, it, it, it's this, this just too, it's an upside down world. I hope you see that. So the antidote for that is recognize God's generosity and be thankful. All of God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving, not joking. To joke about them is to, you're bound to degrade them, to thank God for them as the way to preserve their worth as blessings from our Father. Paul continues in verse 5. These are the verses that in some of the sermons I heard, they skipped over. It was kind of interesting, but we're reading it. It's in there. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. An idolater is someone who worships something in the place of God. So how does not being satisfied or always wanting more show you're an idolater? Hear me. You worship whatever you think is absolutely necessary to make you happy. God is supposed to be the only thing we need to be content in life. And when we're dissatisfied with what we have, we are saying that God is not enough. And if God is not enough and you are someone who uses people for your own needs as opposed to giving yourself up for them, Paul says you don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Okay, So this is one of those where you, oh, you mean how I live, there's to be fruit there that demonstrates I'm a child of God? Yes. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so in Paul's day, the church at Ephesus was being affected and impacted by Gnosticism. The Gnostics were arguing that bodily sins, things you did with your body, could be committed. You do whatever you want without any damage to your soul. There was a separation. Your soul was one. Your body was another. Do whatever you want here, and it doesn't going to affect your soul. Come on. And that's almost exactly what Paul is referring today to. And so in our day, there are many deceivers in the world and even in the church that teach that God is too kind to condemn everybody, to condemn anybody, and that everybody will go to heaven in the end. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you believe. But their words are empty and their teaching deceitful. And Paul says the truth is that because of these things, these immoral, greedy, idolatrous practices, the wrath of God comes upon them. And so walking in love involves giving up of ourselves for others. Not walking in love looks like using people for your own desires and desiring things that God has not given us. And so the sermon title, Walk This Way, if you do write in your Bible and you want to find the number of times that Paul uses the word walk, We're going to see it again here. It tells us that walking in light is also important in verses 7 through 14. Therefore, verse 7, 
Do not become partners with them. Stay away. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk. Walk as children of light. And I looked around, all right, we got songs that sing, and I looked around for something that could help really kind of, and, and Dr. Barnhouse, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, just a great preacher of illustration, he explained it this way. He said, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is a picture of believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. At times, the church has been a full moon, dazzling the world with an almost daytime light. Those were times of great enlightenment. For example, in the days of Paul and Luther and Wesley, at other times, the church has been only a thumbnail moon. And in those days, very little light shone on the earth. But whether the church is a full or thumbnail moon, whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light does not originate with us. And I thought that was beautiful and a great way to just kind of think of what we're doing is we're, we are to be reflecting Christ's light in the world and to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? Well, important. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, if you're taking notes, underline that phrase. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And you're like, well, Paul, aren't you telling us what's pleasing to the Lord? And Paul says, you live in a complicated world where sin is everywhere. You have to try to discern what pleases the Lord. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. It is not always easy to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The world throws some very complicated things at us and I would only need to go through a row or two of this church to just be piled on with complicated things where we've found it so difficult to navigate how we're to love folks that are difficult, how we're supposed to navigate situations that we never imagined that we'd find ourselves in. Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul then goes to the negative side, and you can sum up the following verses as, Wake up! Verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And insert Ephesus, temples, Dionysus, the culture that Paul was writing to, he's spot on. The stuff that was being done was just immensely shameful. And he says, take no part in them, but instead expose them. So if the Holy Spirit is calling us to stand up against wrong, it is our job to be faithful in that. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It is not easy. Verse 13, Paul continues, says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. 
Therefore, it says, and people are not exactly sure what Paul's quoting here. Um, best guess is a baptismal hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If we are light, we need to act as light. Doing both of the things that light does, both positive, which is reflecting the light of Christ, and negative, exposing darkness. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus always puts it so tough. Be a light so that your works make others glorify God. Wow. Paul then says, wake up. To realize that your calling is to walk in love, to walk in light. And so if today's a day where you see that and you're like, okay, I need to figure out what that means to wake up. Get plenty of folks here to help you. The word of God is right there to help you. But may today be a day where you hear that and you move in the direction of discerning what is pleasing to the Lord in your life. So Paul has called us to walk in love, to walk in light, and now he calls us to walk in wisdom in the final verses of this chapter, verses 15 through 21. And I hope you are seeing the walking language and how clear it is. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Okay, Paul, wise, what do you mean? Wisdom means learning to think correctly about things that aren't directly spelled out in Scripture. A lot of life's big decisions are not spelled out directly in Scripture. What job you take, where you go to college, how you spend your money what you do with your free time, what you watch on TV, who you hang out with. Walking in wisdom means making decisions in those areas, in all areas that fit well with an understanding of what God is doing. The days are evil. Make the best use of the time. How do you do this? Paul, verse 17, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is again. Figure out what God wants in your life. Anybody that comes to me and asks about big decisions in their life, such as the most popular one has been, well, what college do I go to? I inevitably will say this, and so I offer it up to you today to consider that God cares much more about the next five minutes of your life than he does about your next five years. Because when you focus on the next five minutes and seek to follow him and seek to walk in love and to walk in light and to walk in wisdom for the next five minutes, you will find that the next five years work themselves out. You will. But if you think you're going to use God as a magic eight ball, you're wrong. 
get off that. Walking in love is the way that you will find out what God's will is. And so what is the opposite of walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom? Verse 18 presents a huge contrast. Oh, we all know this verse. Verse 18, and don't get drunk with wine. If this is the most popular verse in this passage that you quote, I would ask you to confess that right now. It is in the context of walking in love. And let's talk about it. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That is not a 21st century thing, by the way, in case you were wondering. But be filled with the Spirit. And here's what I want you to hear, what what Paul is saying. Self-control matters. We are called over and over again to be controlled by the Spirit of God to let Him control us, and getting drunk with wine is just one of the thousand ways that we can cease to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and let our own desires take over. But why do you think Paul takes this one? Why does he pick being drunk with wine? Why does he pick the favorite thing of the church for the last 200 years and pick that out? Was he forethinking? Let's take a look. Why has Paul picked that one out? Because both are ways to deal with life's pressures and disappointments. But they do it in entirely different ways. They are night and day. Alcohol is a depressant that dulls your senses to reality. It makes you less aware of your surroundings. The Holy Spirit, by contrast, is a stimulus that makes you more aware of reality. There's two ways of overcoming fear and stress in your life. One by dulling your senses, and there are many that do. The other by becoming more alert. Holy Spirit helps you deal with difficulty by opening your eyes more widely to the promise of the gospel. Alcohol gets rid of worry by making you forget. The Spirit gets rid of worry by helping you remember. Alcohol gives you courage by making you less aware of the dangers around you. The Spirit gives you courage by showing you how much larger God is than anything that you could be afraid of. See where Paul's going here? These are two very different approaches to life. Being filled with the Spirit or running from things or hiding things or covering things or suppressing things are two very different approaches. And so Paul says, instead of being drunk, be filled with the Spirit. Doing what? Well, giving to the poor, obviously, reading your Bible, going to bed early, doing the laundry for your spouse, men, that's for you. No, that is not what Paul says. Interestingly enough, how are we filled with the Spirit? And if you don't realize that verse 19 chases verse 18, maybe I'm thrilled that you're here today. How are we filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If you didn't realize that those two verses were right next to each other, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? 
singing. What? Singing. And so I want you to see where Paul's going here. Um, trying to figure out how to say this because I know you guys love me so much and that you go home and you spend your entire lunch talking about the sermon and all the points and reviewing your notes together. But do you realize you have no idea? You might be able to remember what I preached last week because you might have been here, but a month ago, you got nothing. You have nothing. But if I start to hum just one of the 50 or so songs in the rotation that we sing every week, you can finish the song entirely. Isn't that weird? What am I even doing here? <laughs> uh, trying to be obedient. <clears throat> it is one of the reasons that your music and worship team spends so much effort making sure that the songs we sing are biblical. They're scripturally sound. Caleb did an entire sermon on this verse with the Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and talked about the differences between them and really challenged our thinking. If you want to go through our archives and listen to it, it was great. This verse right here, filled with the Holy Spirit, we do it together. We do it together. It's why we come to corporate worship. We're stirring up each other's faith in God. And so Paul says we're to be close enough to each other that we can address each other in song. That is closeness. You know you're close to me if you've been in my car and we have been banging our heads on the steering wheel. If you're really close to me, I actually will drive the car so we're dancing. It's really dangerous. I'm not going to name any names because I still owe some people some meals, but we do that. Music Music really gets us going. And Paul's saying, being filled with the Spirit involves this. This command to address one another in spiritual songs is one of the 58 or so one another passages in the New Testament. Love each other, pray for one another, admonish one another, hear, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you can only do this if you are around other Christians. And I really hope you make sure that you remember verse 19 is right after verse 18. And we've talked about this quite a lot recently. A bunch of y'all have gotten to be a pretty good spectator at church. And for the church to work in your life, it can't just be an event, but a community you belong to. And so we've talked a lot about this in the last couple of months, and hopefully you're seeing right here a direct application of it. And so the blessings of this church do not come from what we program and what we do up here, but from the spirit that moves through each one of us. And one of the biggest ways it does that is when we sing together. And boy, didn't the team lead us in such great topics of how much we need God, about what a great father he is and how much he's done for us. And so don't be drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and together we're going to sing and remember and do this together. And that's part of being spirit-filled, verse 20. And while we're doing that, we're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a complete posture at all times through all of that, filled with the Spirit, singing, loving on one another. The posture is always one of gratitude. In verse 21, circle it. It is the cover for what David's going to talk about next week. It is the cover for our relationship with other believers all day long. Verse 21, submitting to one another because the Bible says so. No, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As beloved children, Christ who gave himself up for you, give yourself up for others. That is what walking in love looks like. Summed up, simply put, and it drives all of our relationships within the body. Not just put up with each other, please. We're not called to just put up with each other. Actually putting others first, desiring God's best in their life and doing things that accomplish that out of reverence for Christ And so I hope that you consider this as you get into your week this week. What a perfect segue into communion. I want to take us back to verse 2 of today's passage. It's right up here. And if you're looking for, again, this week, you're like, you know what? I should should memorize something. It's a wonderful, healthy thing for you to do. Verse 2 would be great. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so if you are here today and you do not understand what it means when it says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, this sacrament, this time that we spend today doing this is not for you. And I would truly challenge you to come find me or one of the pastors or one of the elders or someone you know that does understand it. But what we're going to do right now is out of reverence for Christ, remember what he did for us. And we are told to do this regularly because we forget. And and what do we forget? We forget that Christ gave himself for us. We tend to become selfish. We tend to, to default to that position of just, well, what can I get from others when we forget what Christ did for us? we stop walking in love. We stop being imitators of God. And so if you've got your elements handy, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he was with his disciples and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body and hear it, which is for you. He gave himself up for us. Do this in remembrance of me. If you get the, uh, the juice ready, the Bible tells us that when he'd given thanks, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If the singers and musicians want to go ahead and come up, that'd be great. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have told us that we are to be giving thanks always and for everything to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are thankful. We are thankful for the gift of your son that has made us your adopted children, your beloved children. Without Jesus, it would have been impossible. But you made a way for us to be yours. And we need your help. We need your help to walk in love. I need you every hour. Every hour I need you to help me to walk in love. We cannot do it without you. Thank you for your love. Amen. And so I want to remind us of the final, the, the point we started at the beginning. Being an imitator of God, what a crazy sounding thing that is. It's not some nebulous, far-fetched spiritual mysticism. It involves walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom, seeking what God would have us do in those things, out of reverence for Christ with Christ as our cornerstone. And I love it. We're going to sing this song. The song we get to sing is going, is, is going to help us understand that as Paul counsels us and, and teaches us and challenges us, Christ is our cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. He is Lord, Lord of all. Please stand and we'll sing.